Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Good morning. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Scott Townley. My wife and I, Katie and our two kids, started coming in August of 2020. Uh, for the for a little bit of time, all we knew was this much of people, um, but now we get to see each other's faces and we're thankful for that. And I think one of the things we love the most about redemption is just being in community and serving. And one of the ways that, that we serve is in kids and then we also help with setup and teardown. But I'm gonna read uh, our passage for this morning from Philippians chapter one, starting in verse 27. Only let the manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You can have a seat. Thank you, Scott. Good morning. If we haven't met yet, my name is Chase Ifland, and I've got the privilege of continuing our study in the book of Philippians uh, for us this morning. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but when we are going through books of the Bible, like Philippians verse by verse in uh, church or other churches too, the, the lead preaching pastor, guys like Jeff, like to look ahead and identify the hard or difficult passages that are coming up and give those passages to guys like me to preach. And I used to think that that was a joke and just something that people said when they were preaching a hard passage, but uh, it's happened several times in the two years I've been here, so now I know that there's probably some truth to that. But the good news for us this morning is that today is not one of those days. Uh, verse 27 and following what Scott just read for us in chapter one of Philippians has been called by several commentators the, the theme verse, or the most significant verse in the entire letter. And I guess because it's spring break, daylight savings time, Jeff decided to go skiing and let me preach it for some reason. Um, whether or not this really is the most significant verse in the entire letter, that's up for debate. It's all important, but it's not hard to see why it's at least a very significant passage uh, to understand the letter as a whole. Uh, just to recap where we've been so far in Philippians, uh, Paul's writing this letter to this church in Philippi that he founded several years earlier. And at this point in his life, Paul's now been imprisoned for preaching the gospel. And um, when you're in prison in Rome in the first century, they didn't really supply you with uh, food and clothing. So that was something that your friends and family had to send to you in prison to care for you. 
And this church in Philippi, like many of the churches that Paul was involved with, has sent a gift to Paul in prison. And now Paul's writing a letter back to them to thank them for their gift and to encourage them and build them up in their faith. And so Paul started his letter with this prayer of thankfulness that he offers for the Philippians because they've believed in the gospel and they've become partners in gospel ministry with Paul. Then Paul went on to explain that uh, even though people might think that being in prison was a bad thing, it's actually served to advance the gospel because his jailers have come to faith in Christ and the churches that he's been in contact with have been strengthened and encouraged by his resilience. And then in the passage that we looked at last week, Paul famously tells the Philippians that what he really wants to do is to die and go be with Jesus because that would be the best thing could possibly happen to him. But instead, he knows that he's going to continue to live and continue to encourage and strengthen these churches, including this Philippian church. Paul told them that he's convinced that he will live even though he wants to die and that this living will include more suffering, but it's because God wants to use him as an encouragement to these churches. So Paul said, I will endure more suffering, further imprisonment, more beatings for your sake. And then we get to verse 27, which is where we'll pick it up this morning. And in verse 27, there's a shift that takes place because the first word that Paul writes is only. Other translations say something like most importantly or whatever happens, above all, just one thing. Paul's just finished telling them that he's gonna continue suffering for their sake. And now he's gonna tell them the one thing he wants them to do for him. And I think at this point, as this letter is being read aloud in the church in Philippi, they're probably hanging on every word. They're ready. Paul, what do you want us to do? Tell us what we can do for you. After all, Paul was this man who told them about Jesus and founded their church, and he's praying for them and encouraging them when really they should be praying for and encouraging Paul. He said he's going to continue suffering for them. And now he says, but I want you to do one thing for me. And they were ready to listen to Paul. And what's the one thing he tells them to do? We read it a minute ago. It's let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The one thing Paul asked the Philippians to do for him is that they would live their lives in such a way that reflects and honors the gospel that both they and Paul have believed in and received. And then in the following verses, Paul kind of fleshes that out. He teaches them how they might go about living out uh, a life that's worthy of the gospel. And exactly what Paul tells them to do is a little bit interesting and surprising. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Just like the Philippians, we, we too want to obey Paul. We want to obey God's word. We want to be people who live lives that are worthy of the gospel that we've received. And so this is a good word to us this morning as a path of how we can live that out in our lives. If we want to honor Jesus with the way we live, if we want to experience that progress and joy in the faith that Paul talked about in verse 25, Paul gives us a path here and lays it out before us this morning. So let's jump in, look a little deeper at uh, what Paul's asking them to do and then how we can live this out. So starting in verse 27, Paul makes this hard transition from praying for the Philippians, telling them about his own circumstances, to now exhorting them to action, to do something. He says, just one thing, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. 
And this phrase, manner of life, is really interesting because uh, Paul talks a lot about living worthy of the gospel, but he has this normal pattern that he uses, and this isn't it. So in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 1 and 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul also tells those churches to live their lives worthy of the gospel. But in those letters, he uses the word for walking. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Walk in a manner worthy of God. This is clearly a familiar phrase that Paul repeated in his letters. I'm sure if we met Paul in person, this was something that he would repeat often. But here in Philippians 1.27, he uses a different word, and this word doesn't have to do with walking. It has to do with being a citizen. Uh, if you've got the ESV, there's a, there's a footnote there that, that uh, indicates that for you. So literally, Paul might be saying something like, be a citizen who is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And this brings up a, a little bit of a difficult interpretive question because it's not clear whether Paul's uh, talking about their Roman citizenship as residents of Philippi, or if maybe he's talking about their heavenly citizenship, which he explicitly mentions in chapter three. So on the one hand, Roman citizenship was this, this huge deal in the first century, and it was a, a Philippi's this prominent city, and so we could see that Paul might be kind of appealing to their pride and their sense of duty as citizens by calling them to be worthy citizens in Philippi. But then on the other hand, in chapter three, like I said, he explicitly connects their citizenship to heaven. So what is it here in this verse? And we don't know for sure, but what we do know for sure is that Paul chose this word intentionally. Uh, elsewhere in the New Testament, he repeats it with this word walking. So there's gotta be a reason that he picks this citizenship word here. And where most commentators come down on this is that uh, whether Paul, uh, that Paul's likely thinking about both their Philippian citizenship and their heavenly citizenship. He's probably introducing this citizenship concept in chapter one to, to grab them emotionally and kind of appeal to this, this pride they had as citizens of Philippi. But then in chapter three, he's gonna come back around and say, but wait a minute, your true citizenship isn't in Philippi, it's in heaven. One commentator paraphrases verse 27 this way. He says, live in such a way in your earthly city as is worthy of your heavenly city. And I think that's the sense of what Paul's saying here, his one thing. He's asking the one thing he wants the Philippians to do is live in Philippi in such a way that is worthy of Jesus and the heavenly city which you're going towards. And I think this is a good encouragement for us as well. Uh, Paul likely uses this citizenship word in order to grab them emotionally, appeal to their love for their city, but also to push back on their love for their city a bit. So in other words, Paul's wanting them to be a good citizen in their city, to love their city and engage their city and pursue good in their city and tell people about Jesus in their city. But there's also this hint of warning that he explicitly says in chapter three, which is don't get too comfortable in your city. Don't live in your city of Philippi in a way that's worthy of the wealthy and elite in Philippi. Live in Philippi in a way that's worthy of Jesus and what he's called you to. Well, I don't think I have to tell you that in Edmond, Oklahoma, there's that same pressure and temptation that they must have felt in Philippi to look a certain way and have a certain lifestyle. And uh, that for many people, those things are what it means to be a worthy citizen of Edmond. 
And of course, there's nothing inherently wrong with most of those things, but, but what Paul's saying here is that if you've received Christ, you've got a different standard of what it means to be a good citizen. That even in our earthly city, even in Philippi or in Edmond, the standard for us as Christians is still heaven. So that's Paul's one thing he asked the Philippians to do. The one thing that he's asking us to do by extension this morning is to live lives that are worthy of the gospel, live lives that are worthy of, Edmund, of heaven, excuse me, even as we live here on earth in Edmond. Live in Philippi, live in Edmond in a way that's worthy of the gospel. Now Paul goes on to lay out that path. He lays out how, what does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel? And it, it's a little bit interesting to me of what he chooses to, to flesh out here of what that looks like. So he says, whether I get to see you in person again, whether I just am gonna hear about you, I wanna know that, there, that you're doing several things to live this out. And the first one is I wanna know that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So the first thing we can learn from this text about living a life worthy of the gospel in Edmond, Oklahoma, is that we should be fighting for the gospel, not fighting one another. Nothing is more important to Paul in this letter than that the church display unity and that the church take that unity and go work to spread the gospel in their city and around the world. We see that here in, in phrases like one spirit, one mind, striving side by side. And there's a lot of things Paul could have chosen to say, this is how you live a life worthy of the gospel. But here in Philippians, the, his primary focus for living this out is unity and its mission. Paul wants nothing more than to see a united church of people called together from all over the city whose primary goal is the continued advance of the gospel. I think it's safe to say that this uh, letter on unity and mission to the Philippians from the first century has a little bit of relevance for the church in America 2,000 years later. Uh, unity is something really hard in a diverse place like America. Our churches are made up of different age groups and different races and different languages, different economic backgrounds, different uh, theological persuasions, different political ideologies. But I don't think the unity was just a simple thing for the Philippian church either. Uh, we know from the book of Acts, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, as, as Paul founded this church, the first three converts were pretty uh, diverse, even in those. We've got a single Greek woman named Lydia who is a practicing Jew and is a wealthy business owner. We've got a middle-aged jailer and his family, and we've got a young slave girl. And then as this church has grown up in this prominent city of Philippi, we can assume that uh, they've added more men and women. They've added Jews and Greeks and Romans. They've added rich people and poor people and carpenters and farmers, politicians, and uh, whatever people did in Philippi. And yet Paul calls this church, which was probably just as diverse as our churches, to unity. But notice where he grounds his unity. What's the reason Paul gives that they could even have unity? He says he wants them to be standing firm in one spirit. If you have the ESV or some other translations, they don't capitalize the word spirit here, but pretty much all commentators agree that, that Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit. Paul's saying, stand firm in the Holy Spirit that you've been given. For Paul, this is the only reason the church can have unity. It's the Spirit. 
They can't unite around things like race or social class or occupation or background or politics because all of those things actually divide people. All of those things unite people who are like one another, not people who are different from one another. But Paul wants them to be united, and so he knows if they're going to be united, there's something else that's going to have to unite them. And for Paul, he says, that's God's spirit. Uh, Paul uses this phrase, one spirit, several times in his letters when he's talking about unity. In 1 Corinthians 12, he's talking about how uh, Christians all have different gifts, but every gift, no matter what it is, is important. And Paul says the reason that's true is because every gift comes from one spirit. Then in Ephesians 2, Paul's talking about how both Jews and Gentiles can come to God, and he says it's because it's not the external things that brings them to God, it's the one spirit that brings them to God. Paul clearly ties unity with the Holy Spirit. I think that's right, because without God's spirit, we've got no hope of gathering diverse people from all over our city and having any sort of unity. But with the spirit, unity is possible. And it's so interesting to me in this passage that uh, Paul doesn't just leave it with unity, though. This passage talks a lot about unity, but it's really about mission. There's this close connection for Paul between unity and mission. Paul says, stand firm in one spirit, but then he just blazes through that and goes on to say, take one mind and then strive by, side by side for the faith of the gospel. So Paul wants them to take their unity that they possess because of the Holy Spirit and then go work together for a purpose. And that purpose is to see Christianity continue to spread, to see more disciples made and to continue to tell people about Jesus. So for Paul, there is not, it's not enough for just there to be an absence of conflict or fighting. Paul wants them to take that absence of conflict and fighting and then go apply it toward the mission of God that he's called them to. Uh, Gordon Fee summarizes verse 27 this way. He says, for them to live out their citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel means for them to contend for the faith of the gospel and to do so in the unity that only the spirit brings. This is the single most important thing Paul wants the Philippians to do in order to glorify God with their lives. It's live in unity, it's fight for the gospel, don't fight with one another. Well, it's no secret that the church in America, individual churches, just Christians, we, we are incredibly divided over a number of issues, some really important and some not so important at all. But I wonder what would happen if our primary focus as Christians and on a church was truly about this mission of making disciples that Paul calls us to. Because most division in local churches is over personal preferences that don't really have any impact whatsoever on whether this mission of making disciples will be successful. And most division in the church as a whole in America is because, uh, again, because the primary mission is no longer for many people making disciples. It's getting candidates elected and building the biggest, most influential, prettiest churches. And so what's happened is if we lose our focus on the mission, the result is then in turn, we lose our unity as well. The Spirit of God empowers a diverse Christians from every background to live in, uni in unity on mission to make disciples, but he doesn't empower us for unity uh, to pick a certain music style or paint color for our new building or, or get a specific candidate elected. There's no unity from God's Spirit on those things. 
And now, of course, God cares about those things. God gives us wisdom by his spirit for those things. I'm not saying that he doesn't, but the point is that I think the primary reason our churches are so divided is because we've taken our eyes off of the mission. Too many Christians, too many churches have made something other than making disciples our primary task, and the result is that we've lost our unity. We've got a family at our church who started coming to Redemption about a year ago, and we got to sit down with them at a Connect lunch and, and hear their story. And they told us that they grew up in church in the United States, but uh, as many of us have, they became frustrated with the church in the United States. And uh, they moved to Europe, to Prague, for a job for several years. And uh, when they moved out there, there weren't a ton of options for churches. They just jumped into the one that was close by. And they were immediately struck by how missionally focused this church was. It seemed so different to them than a lot of the churches they had been a part of in America. This church was serving the poor. They were working for the good of their city. They were telling people about Jesus. And after living in Prague for several years, one of their major takeaways for the difference between this church and the churches they had been a part of in America was that the church in Prague was primarily concerned with making disciples. And so the secondary issues, while they were still there, didn't divide them. While the churches in America they had been a part of were primarily concerned with those secondary issues and had taken their eyes off the mission of making disciples. And in, in situations like that, when the, the secondary matters come up, they divide churches. In America, secondary matters divide churches, but in these other situations where there isn't a church on every corner, it's easier to overlook those issues because it's just exciting that there's other Christians that you can live on mission with. This connection uh, between unity and mission doesn't actually originate from Paul. Uh, Jesus talked about this too. In uh, John 17, verses 20 through 21, Jesus said, I do not ask for these only. He's praying here. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also those who would believe in me through their word. And that's all of us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. So Jesus prays this beautiful prayer for unity among his followers and then his purpose statement, the whole reason that he wants them to have unity is so that others would believe that Jesus was sent by the Father. So in other words, unity among Christians is a sign to the world that Jesus is Lord. And I think the reverse is probably true as well. Disunity among Christians is a sign to the world that Jesus is not Lord. And when we listen to Jesus' words here, it's no wonder that the number of uh, professing Christians in America just continues to decline so rapidly year by year. Jesus told us that a, a, a church filled with division would lead to a church that's not making disciples. I would go so far as to say that our greatest barrier as a church to making disciples in the 21st century isn't what our culture believes about sex and gender. It, it isn't who's in the Oval Office. It isn't if our church meets in a middle school. It's disunity among Christians. And that's discouraging. Uh, but the good news is we're not responsible to fix everything. Uh, Jeff's been saying repeatedly this year that uh, the church is going to be okay. 
the state of the church isn't great, but it's going to be okay. But what we're responsible for is our own lives and our own church and our own moment. And the good news is, when we live this verse out, when we're standing firm in one spirit, when we have one mind and are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, the result is joy. Even in the midst of all of this chaos and discouragement and division, there can be joy. In verse 25 last week, Paul told the Philippians that uh, he was going to work for their progress and their joy in the faith. That's why we call this sermon series Road to Joy, because you could say that Paul wrote this book kind of as a manual, a roadmap to the Philippians for how to live a life of joy. And after Paul introduces that in verse 27, the first thing he tells them about living a life of joy is live in unity and on mission with other Christians. So I just want to pause briefly and ask you, are you experiencing joy in Christ? I think this text forces us to ask ourselves if we're not experiencing joy in Christ, are we, is there division in our lives? Or are we living on mission in our lives? A church is to be a group of people who strive side by side together for the faith of the gospel. As we greet visitors on Sunday mornings or as we encourage one another in our small groups throughout the week, as we invite neighbors to church or tell people about Jesus or lead at RSM or serve at Restore OKC and just as we just live as a life-giving presence in our city. Everything we do as a church and as Christians should be about this mission of making disciples. And Paul tells us that the result of living life this way is joy. And of course, there are so many things that can rob us of joy in life. So I don't want to oversimplify things and say, if you live on mission, you're just going to be joyful all the time. Of course, that's not true. But if you are a Christian and you have an absence of joy in your life, it at least could be true that absence of mission could be one of those factors. Before we move on to verse 28, uh, how can we apply this? Which is a couple of takeaways. And the first one is, let's strive by side by side for the faith of the gospel. As a church, let's not just be a place that we show up to for an hour on Sunday mornings, but let's live on mission together. Let's be salt and light in Edmond. Let's tell people about Jesus's love and grace. Second, let's keep the main thing the main thing. Uh, let's live out the gospel in our lives and keep the mission the primary focus, not other things that divide us. Let's unite around the gospel and around Christ. Third, we can't live this out apart from the local church. Uh, it would be easy to, to see Paul talking about unity here and just say, well, I'm just going to get out of the church. Uh, the, if the church is filled with division and I'm going to disagree with people, the, the easiest thing is just to withdraw. But that wouldn't be living out these verses either because Paul, again, doesn't just desire the absence of conflict. His desire is to see hundreds of unique, diverse individuals make up one body and then go live on mission together. So don't withdraw from church if there's division. Press into the church. Pray for, encourage others in this mission that we're all on together. So that's the first aspect we see of, of living a life worthy of the gospel in this passage. It's fighting for the gospel, not fighting one another. Now we'll, we'll spend far less time on these other verses. Starting in verse 28, let's look at what else Paul says about uh, living a life worthy of the gospel. He says, do all of this not frightened in anything by your opponents. 
So the second thing I want us to see here is that living a life worthy of the gospel means remaining confident when facing opposition or suffering for Christ. Paul knows better than anyone else that living a life on mission is going to result in opposition and suffering. It, it ended up with Paul in prison. And it's not clear who these opponents are that Paul's talking about, but it seems like they're non-Christians. Most likely these are people, uh, Romans in Philippi, who are angry that Christians are going around the city preaching that Jesus and not Caesar is Lord. And as Christians, we should know that preaching Jesus is Lord is always going to bring some sort of opposition. Of course, I don't think anyone that we talk to in Edmond is going to be concerned uh, that Jesus is Lord, but they are probably, whether they say it or not, think that they are their own Lord. I think uh, many of us who grew up in the church, we, we forget just how offensive and confronting the Christian message that Jesus is Lord really is. Uh, the hallmarks of our culture today are you create your own identity, you believe what you wanna believe, and you do whatever makes you happy. But the gospel says your identity is in Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus knows what's good for you and what isn't. And he is worthy to tell you what to do and what not to do. And that message is just going to face a lot of opposition. And we probably won't end up beaten or imprisoned like Paul was for preaching the gospel. But if we preach the gospel in our city, we will face opposition. And that opposition is only mounting as our culture grows even more secularized. But the surprising and good news in this passage is that Paul kind of seems to think that that's a good thing. Uh, in this verse, he says that standing firm in the midst of uh, opposition is actually a sign to our opponents of their destruction, but it should give us confidence in our salvation. And it's a little bit tricky what exactly Paul's getting at here, but it seems to be that what he's saying is that our opponents are going to look at our standing firm and say, well, they're not giving in, so they're ultimately going to be destroyed. But we know that what happens here in this moment and on this life isn't the end of the story, and that ultimately the opponents are the ones who will go to their downfall, and we will be saved. So Paul says, remain confident because this, you knew this was going to happen and this is a sign to you that you, are, uh, that you will be saved. And then we end our text with these verses, verses 28 and 20, and, and 30, 29 and 30. Paul says, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So Paul's final thought in this section is that it has been granted to us by God that we would suffer for Christ's sake. I, I wish I could tell you that the ESV got this one wrong, that, that suffer is a bad translation here, but it's not. This is what Paul's saying, that Christians have been ordained by God, it's been granted to us that we would suffer for Christ's sake. Now, this isn't the only place that Paul says this. And in Romans 8, he says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
So not only should opposition or persecution uh, grow our confidence in Christ, but Paul seems to be saying that outright suffering should grow our confidence in Christ. And this is not a simple doctrine. We're, we're running low on time for today, but it's really clear from Paul and elsewhere in the New Testament that our salvation, part of our Christian life, is, leads to something that theologians call union with Christ. And the clearest example of union with Christ is that our sin, Christ takes our sin on the cross and we take his righteousness. There's this union and these transferings that take place. Christ identifies with our sin, we identify with his righteousness. In Romans 8 that we read a moment ago, Paul says, as Christ was raised from the dead and conquered sin and death, we in union with Christ will be raised from the dead and conquer sin and death. That's something we can't do on our own, but we can do in union with Christ. And forgiveness of sin, eternal life, uh, all of that sounds great when it comes to union with Christ, but Paul also indicates that union with Christ doesn't mean just getting to experience those good things Christ experienced, that somehow in God's mysterious plan, our union with Christ means that we also identify with Christ's sufferings that we would suffer in ways that we would not have suffered if we hadn't become Christians, that we will suffer for Christ. In Romans 8, Paul said we were raised with Christ. We get to experience the benefits with Christ, provided we suffer with him. And in Philippians, he says, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And again, union with Christ, suffering, these are huge topics. We're just scratching the surface this morning. But uh, as we get ready to close, I just want uh, us to consider a few implications of what this verse means for our lives. The first thing is that if you are a Christian, you should expect to experience suffering in your life. Unfortunately, there's too many popular preachers and books and churches that uh, either implicitly or explicitly teach us that if you're a Christian, God will bless you with health and wealth and no suffering whatsoever. But the clear teaching of the Bible is that if you're a Christian, you should actually expect to suffer for the sake of Christ. And of course, God does promise to bless us and to provide for us and to watch over us and be with us, but nowhere does he promise perfect health and perfect wealth he does clearly here promise suffering. And so we shouldn't be caught off guard when suffering comes. It's actually dangerous to our faith if we expect not to suffer because then suffering comes and it wounds our faith. But Paul says, expect it. And when it comes, it can grow your confidence. The second thing that I want to mention is that even if you aren't facing direct opposition or persecution for your faith, the Christian life will still involve suffering. You might be suffering financially because you choose to live on one incomes and, and homeschool your kids or because you uh, choose to foster or adopt or uh, because you haven't cheated to get ahead in your career like others have or because you uh, pick a certain job so that you can stay home more often than another job would let you stay home or because you're generous with your money to the church and to others and so you're hurting financially. Maybe you're suffering relationally because you're a Christian, because your friends or family don't understand why you live a certain way, or maybe you get made fun of or just not taken seriously at work or school because of your faith. 
Maybe you're suffering as a Christian because you've given up dreams or pursuits in life or given up just valuable time each week in order to serve the church and to serve others and to serve our city. Some people have and will face direct opposition or persecution because of their faith. But even if we don't suffer in ways like Paul suffered, uh, we still know that the Christian life leads to suffering. When we live on mission for God, those are the natural things that will come our way. But the last thing here is that this suffering isn't the end of the story. In our union with Christ, we look at Christ as the example, and what we see in Christ's life was suffering led to glory. We see Paul say that explicitly in in Romans 8. If we suffer with him, we will experience glory with him. And Paul ends this section saying uh, that you're engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And Paul's basically saying, I'm suffering now, you're about to suffer now, but we'll both be glorified in the end. We have every reason to remain confident when we face suffering that comes about because of our faith. Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then in a similar passage, but a less famous one from Luke 6, uh, Jesus says, blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Jesus literally tells his followers to leap for joy when we face persecution or suffer for the gospel. And why is he able to say that? It's because our reward, the thing that drives us and motivates us, the thing that we live for is in heaven. And if it's in heaven, it's unaffected by our circumstances here on earth. It's so interesting to me all throughout Philippians 1, what we've seen so far is Paul's talking about all of these things that bring him joy. And none of those things can be affected by his worldly circumstances. And so he still has joy even when his worldly circumstances are terrible. In this letter, we come back to this concept of joy over and over again. First, this morning, it was that living on mission leads to joy. Now, somehow, Paul can even tell us that suffering for the sake of Christ ought to lead to joy. I wonder if that's true in your life, that suffering leads to joy. Uh, I'll confess, it is most of the time not true in my life. And there's a few reasons why that could be the case. One, one might be because we're not le- living our lives in a way that invites suffering for Christ. If we're not sacrificing for others, if we're not telling people about Jesus, then we're not going to face suffering for Christ. And if we don't suffer for Christ, we can't experience the joy that comes from suffering for Christ. Maybe it's because we are experiencing this suffering, but we've subtly bought into that lie that we don't deserve this suffering. And so when it comes, we just look to dodge it and avoid it and stuff it down. And it just makes us angry instead of leading us to joy. What Paul teaches us here is that suffering for our faith should be expected and that when it comes, it should serve to increase our joy in Christ. So that's the path that Paul lays out for us this morning. 
He invites us to live as citizens in Edmond that's worthy of our true citizenship in heaven. And then the path includes not living to the standard of Edmond, but living to the standard of heaven. It includes working side by side with other Christians for the mission and advance of the gospel in our city and around the world. It includes uniting around the gospel and not dividing over secondary issues. And it includes expecting and experiencing opposition and suffering, but standing firm and remaining confident, knowing that this suffering is temporary and our reward with Christ is forever. So all of these things ought to deepen our faith and increase our joy. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you have called us to yourself through Christ. God, I'm just so grateful that you've given us salvation of sins, but not even that, that you've given us, uh, not just that, but that you've given us a mission. Um, Father, we pray that you would increase our joy as we go about living out these things. Give us strength to work together as a church to make disciples. And Father, we know that we can't be successful in that mission without you leading the way. And so we just ask that by your spirit, you would come and give us a sense of unity, uh, that you would help keep us focused on the mission, that you would help many people wake up to deep, meaningful life in Christ in our city because of our church. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.